Hello, my name is Gary Megan, and this is A Plate to Call Home. Conversations with fascinating people, all centred around food. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Nick Haddo of Bruny Island Cheese, which is a dairy on a farm on a tiny little island, very close to Hobart, but very, very remote. And as Nick will attest, setting up a dairy farm on one of the remotest corners of the world has its challenges, but also its rewards. Nick has a lovely philosophical take on the manufacturing of cheese, the making of cheese, the forming of cheese, and the idea of locally grown and sourced food. He's a wonderful artisan and a lover of the finer things, which is probably why I relate to him so well. Hope you enjoy. Nick Haddo, Bruny Island Cheese. Mm -hmm. I've known about Bruny Island Cheese for a long time. Love the cheese. I, I think people that are listening to this may be still discovering that there's actually a fantastic uh, cheese coming out of Tasmania. Ted, where did this whole thing start? When did Bruny Island Cheese start? Well, we started in November 2003, really, is the, is the day that I first made cheese under the Bruny Island Cheese Company label. I was, uh, we, we were actually living in Tasmania for about a year before that. We is Leonie, my partner and I. Right. We, we'd been living in Japan and we moved to Tasmania because I was offered a job at Pyangana Dairy Company up in yeah. the northeast of Tasmania. So another very well-known Brilliant little cheese, cheese producer, making yeah. cloth-matured cheddar in uh, up sort of near St. Helens and they've been making the same cheese in that same place for about... A hundred years, a bit more than a hundred years. And that is not something you get to say very often in yeah. Australia, you know, given our heritage. Pretty special. It's really special. And to be the custodian of that product for a little while was a real privilege. And yeah. I learned a load. One of the most important things that I learned whilst working at Pyangana was I didn't want to make cheese for anyone else anymore. I wanted to make cheese for myself. Right. And that's why Bruni Island Cheese Company came about. So how did you go about finding a site, coming up with an idea, did you have an idea of the kind of cheese that you wanted to make? Yeah. Well, finding a site, first of all, was a bit tricky because, um, I look, to be honest, Pine Garner was both a privilege but also quite a challenge. You know, we'd just moved from our pretty, you know, privileged expatriate lifestyle in Japan to what is essentially the Valley of Two Surnames in Tasmania. And... You know, that, that transition was fairly tough for yeah. us uh, culturally and socially. And we had a half kind of made the decision we might head back somewhere else, maybe back to Japan somewhere else. But, you know, we'd better go and see some of Tasmania before we go. <laughs> and so we started doing these weekend road trips. And um, one of the first places we went to was down south to Hobart because we hadn't been there yet. Yeah. Hobart just blew our minds. Like, it's just the most beautiful city. Of, of all the places that I've visited and lived, I think Hobart is, you know... Why is it in, beautiful to you? Because there'll be people that go, what are you talking about? I don't understand. It's a, oh, it's a, you kidding? It's a small it is, town. Yeah, and, and part of that is the beauty. And look, that doesn't appeal to everyone, but by God, it appeals to me. Um, the sense of community, uh, aesthetically, it's amazing. Just the geographically, to have a backdrop of a mountain and a, and a front doormat of a river is just beautiful. And to be within... A fifteen-minute drive of you know in any direction of absolute pristine wilderness um, is oh, it's it's just a, a wonderful place. Further south from that, you follow the River Derwent down, you get to the Don Tricasto Channel. Mm. 
amazingly beautiful, like, you know, knee-tremblingly beautiful. And then you, we went across the river and, and went to Bruny Island and, and just that penny-dropping moment of within five minutes of being on the island, we just thought, this is it. Yeah, this is it's a beautiful place. It, it takes a bit of getting to, though, doesn't it, Bruny Island? I mean, you've got to get a ferry. I mean, in the height of summer, I've been over. Yeah, and, and look and, like- yeah, and mind you, a queue... Let's be honest. It's not like uh, it's not a big city queue. No, it takes a bit of effort. So you're isolating yourself by choosing a spot like Bruny Island, are you not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think again, that's part of my appeal. A lot of the work, uh, you know, when I, I kind of reflect back on where I've worked and where I've chosen to travel in my lifetime, I've often been um, attracted by isolated places and islands, particularly. Uh, and I think that that's certainly part of the appeal of not only Tasmania but Bruny Island as mm. well. Um, it is a world apart. It is a, a place removed. That isolation makes it special. You have to put a bit of effort into getting there and you appreciate it so much more when you get yeah. there. So when you when you went there and you thought, did you actually think, did you have a light bulb moment where you went, this is where we, we should set up? Well, we found a house, first of all, and it's, a, it's kind of an old um, farmhouse right on the beach, you know, back when you could buy such a thing on mm. Bruni and in Tasmania. Um, and we poured every dollar that we had into it. I had to, you know, sell my um, my wave ski and my bike <laughs> just to kind of come up with the, the deposit. And so we, we bought this house and then we thought, Jesus, now we need to make it work. But one of... One of the reasons we loved this house because it, it was on the main road on Bruni, so we knew we'd we'd get a little bit of traffic back then. Bruni was pretty undiscovered, mm. uh, certainly not the same now though. Yeah, it's a busy place. Yeah, it is. Well, by uh, Bruni Island standards, I suppose. oh, by Bruni Island standards, it's really busy, and uh, you know, with that popularity and that um, you know it, it, that reputation comes some problems, and yeah. you know, particularly on the infrastructure side of things, living on Bruni is a very different thing now than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. In in what sense? There's just loads of people. Um, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that have, you know, live on Bruni Island because they're looking for an isolated, quieter existence. Mm. Um, and so kind of managing that transition between Bruni Island being um, a kind of a pristine refuge at the same time as opening it up yeah. um, and showing it off to the world is, yeah. it's, you know, it's it's a tricky part. And giving sometimes. some viability to the businesses that are on. Yeah, there. exactly right. It's an interesting transition. I'm sure there's a lot of people that really don't like the fact that you're there now. There's some pretty interesting conversations that take place <laughs> on the ferry. <laughs> so, so when you found this spot, you found this house. Uh, now you got. To, what are you looking for? You're looking for a supply chain. You're looking for. So you need milk to make cheese. Okay, you so need, you need it, equipment. Yeah. It, if you're starting a small cheesery in Australia, this is my advice to everyone, don't do it on a small island off the south coast of Tasmania <laughs> where there are no dairy farms, uh, there are very few people, that, you know, the, the talent pool from an employment perspective is, is uh, pretty sh- small and shallow. Um, you know, so we've, you know, it is the world's most stupid place to start a cheesery. Uh, but that said... Would I do it again? Yeah, you bet. You know, I think it's worked and we've made it work. There are a whole host of challenges that come with developing a, a an artisan business, producing a small perishable product when you're located as somewhere as, you know, at the end of the world like Bruni Island. Yeah. Um, but I think we're in front, you know. I think we've won more than we've lost. Oh, yeah, certainly 
the, the name people are starting to get to know. But I want to keep you in that, that startup zone at the moment. Yeah, okay. Where <clears throat> was there a moment where you thought, oh, this, because you said, you know, my advice is don't do it on a small moment, mm. where you just thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I mean, did you, <laughs> did you nearly go bust? And every did day you? since. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, look, we started Bruni Island Cheese Company along the kind of the traditional supply chain supply chain chain lines of we make something and we're going to sell it to someone who's going to on sell it, wholesale distributors, and eventually export. Because as a small business person, you, you know, you're led to believe that export's like the holy grail of what we're meant to do, particularly if you live somewhere like Australia and, you know, the world is your oyster. Yeah. That didn't really stack up for us. So we, we've had to in the last, not immediately because we kind of went down that path and it just didn't work on so a number of levels. So were you thinking, okay, back to Japan, for example, or well, no, not one, that they're big cheese eaters, but did you have in your mind Well, that- at one stage, we were actually sending about half of what we made to Whole Foods, which is a, a kind of a top-end supermarket chain throughout America. Right. And that is really because as as a small producer, you kind of gravitate towards love, really. Yeah. You know, anyone that shows you any kind of interest in what you're doing or understanding or appreciation of what you're doing... You, you know, you follow them like a puppy dog. Um, and that's what happened to me. Um, back in the very, very early days, about the third year that we were making cheese, and, you know, we were doing it really tough in those first sort of th- five years, really, where uh, we would work all day making cheese, um, washing up and tending to the cheese. And then at night we'd go and work in a bar in Hobart to kind of earn enough money to buy enough milk to do it all again the next day. Um, and we were starting to get a little bit of attention. You know, people were starting to take notice because what we were making was, it was you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was different, you know. Yeah. It wasn't the kind of cheese that was being made. It didn't look like the kind of cheese that was being made in Australia. It didn't sound or taste like the kind of cheese. It had weird names and different stories and... Um, we had an article written about us by Anthony Bourdain, who you no doubt know. And a, a, you know, for those that are listening, they're going Anthony Bourdain. I might have heard the mm. you know big celebrity chef, big celebrity chef wrote in, Kitchen in the, Confidential. Yeah, amazing a, guy. Originally the bad boy of yeah. cooking. You know, well he um, uh, he's been lucky enough to combine a career of travel and cooking and done it very successfully. He. You know, this was in about 2006, wrote an article uh, for a US magazine called Gourmet, which he basically ate his way around Australia and wrote it up as he went and finished this article. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of, of all the things that I ate in Australia, it was a cheese called Owen by Bruni Island Cheese Company that was the best. Wow. You yeah, know, wow. wow. That's, that's pretty wow. Talk about... Um, a life-changing moment, you mm. know. I've just suddenly got like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of free publicity in a market that I could never possibly ever sell to. Mm. So I was kind of uh, mixed <laughs> feelings about it. And then I got a phone call from a fella um, called Craig who he he lived in um, Dallas and he said, look, you're getting all this amazing coverage over here because I think that article was reproduced in, in various forms. I'd love to sell you cheese in America. 
oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, we're tiny. You know, we're at the end of the world and we're really expensive. <laughs> and, you know, we don't even have enough cheese to make, not making enough cheese to sort of supply our local market. And all of that kind of didn't matter because this guy, he got it. You know, he really knew what we were trying to achieve to the point where actually he came and visited a few weeks later. And I spent a few days with, with him making cheese and it was wonderful. Anyway, we were selling all of our cheese to him in America, but at the same time, um, we were sort of saying no to a whole bunch of people that wanted it. Who'd heard about you. Yeah. You're on the grapevine and they're going, yeah. so I want, where's Owen? Well, I want they, that cheese. And we started getting some people coming to our cellar door. You know, traffic started increasing to Bruni Island and people had come in and they'd say, you know, when I get home to Brisbane or, you know, Broome or wherever, can I buy your cheese in my local mm. IGA? We know because a we're really small and don't make enough, and and aren't we clever? We're sending it all to America. Yeah, um, but that just financially didn't really stack up for us because yeah, I may have as well have been wrapping every piece of cheese in a five dollar note, really, um, and it was unsustainable for us. But most importantly, what it proved to me that was eventually we'd lost touch with the people who were eating our cheese. Right. And that redefined the whole direction of Bruni Island yeah. Cheese Company, that realisation. It's fascinating. So you said mm -hmm. you had mixed feelings about this Anthony Bourdain uh, article. Why, mm. why was that? And this realisation, I suppose, that you were, what, missing out on the people that you should be feeding? Or wh wh where was your head at this Yeah, stage? well... So we're selling cheese in America, but no one in Australia is eating exactly. the cheese. <laughs> and at the same time, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite a strong advocate for eating locally and supporting mm. local producers and not necessarily supporting, uh, it, you know, imported cheese a lot. And yet I was exporting, duh. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to, to me, it, it didn't really stack up on, a, on an ethical level. But like I say, you know, like you just, someone shows you some interest and you're a small business, you know, you're determined to grow and someone places a massive order, you, you know. Yeah. You kind of fill it. Well, in reality, business, and people forget this because especially when you're an artisan or a small business, people put you yeah. up on a pedestal and go, oh, that's not quite right. But yeah. business is enterprise for profit. So if you don't make a profit, you can't make cheese. Exactly right. So you've got to go where the, at Making least a where the money is. Making profit was pretty important. Yeah. And also, you know, to me, like, and I reckon you'd agree with this, that we use food as the kind of the, the punctuation marks of our travels, mm. right? And I don't want people to be able to experience Bruni Island in New York. I want them to be able to ex experience the food of Bruni Island on Bruni Island. Yeah. You know, if we can get everything anywhere, why what's leave home? You know, what's yeah. the point? Um, and it makes total sense because actually even that now rewinding going, well, you've got to get there first. Yeah. So you've got to get to Tasmania. And it's you've got an to get experience to and you experience it yeah. through all of your senses, not just eating, but, you know, visually the, the, mm. the, the smells, the sights, the sounds. Yeah. As well. And it's very important to me that we are, as a business, trying to make the best Bruni Island cheese that we can. Not the best French cheese we can on Bruni Island or the best Italian cheese, but the absolutely, you know, truly, because to me, great cheese speaks of that place and that time, but truly great Bruni Island cheese with truly great regional character. 
Yeah, and what is that? Re- what is that regional character? Can you can you kind of describe that? I mean, is there a cheese that you make that you go, yeah, that exemplifies everything that I do, and what and why? Oh, yeah. Can I answer that by first uh, talking a bit about cheese? Yeah, broadly about yeah. why I. Think- well, I had a couple of questions in my mind, and I want to find that out. So yes, yeah. you can. I, okay. Well, so to me, great cheese, like I just said. Um, okay, so cheese is made from milk, right? And milk is the product of what an animal has eaten in the last, let's say, 24 hours. Uh, So, therefore, milk is this incredibly regional product, possibly the most regional product in the world, in that one cow on a paddock will produce something totally different to another cow on the next paddock. And there are an infinite number of variations that can determine the different flavour characteristics Mm. and aroma characteristics of that milk. And cheese is just milk immortalised. It's just cheese, which is... uh, Cheese is just milk that is kind of preserved place and time, for example. It's a beautiful way of putting it. But exact out of necessity, that's how it would have originated, right? And so, to me, great cheese represents that time and place. Great cheese has to have regional character. Now, we've stuffed that up totally in the world in the last sort of 50 years because now uh, it it doesn't matter if you're making cheese in Tasmania or New Zealand or North America or Devon. Chances are, and the, there's a very strong chance, like a 75% chance you're using a f- one breed of cow, the same breed of cow worldwide, black and white Holstein Frisian. Yeah. They're artificially inseminated from the same three big sperm banks around the world, all using the same, you know, uh, sperm and, and semen straws. They're all eating the same five or six species of grass around the world. And then if we haven't bastardised the regionality of the milk enough, we then pasteurise it. And then when we go to make cheese, we use the same starter cultures as everyone else in the world. So with everything that we've done as a cheesemaker and a farmer has been about removing as much regional, true regional character from mm. that milk and therefore the cheese as yeah. possible. So we get production, we <clears throat> get consistency, we get food, yeah. but we don't get something that's unique and interesting and full of character, yeah. a different character. And then we'll probably vacuum pack it as well and don't let anything <laughs> natural grow on the outside. So to me, you know, really good cheese should be made from... Um, you know, animals that are native to the area, grazing on, you know, grasses and and plants and herbs that are native to the area should be made, must be made with unpasteurised milk, preferably with starter cultures that you've made in-house and then natural uh, maturation, allowing the indigenous moulds and yeast and bacteria to grow on the outside. So to answer your question, do I make anything like that? Is there anything that I make that represents that? Well, I would hope that all of my cheeses do that as much as I possibly can within the pretty tight regulatory framework that exists yeah. in, in Australia. So we do make a, one of our cheeses is, is a raw milk cheese that's um, naturally matured. And I think that that is probably as close to cheese making as, as great cheese making as I can get right now, although it's about to change Massively, because we're in right. the middle of starting our. Because there's dairy a lot farm. of regulation. I mean, to put this into perspective, <clears throat> you know, and and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but 
to put this into perspective of the general public, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things going on, isn't there? I mean, we eat a lot of cheap, vacuum-packed, highly processed cheddar. Yeah. You know, like I remember coming to Australia in 91 and the choice of cheese was pretty limited. I mean, pie and yeah. was one. I remember Tarago River yeah, yeah. was in another. In Gippsland. In Gippsland. Yeah. And everything else seemed to be Coon and Mainland or whatever it Look, was. M- most cheese, this is not a flippant line, most cheese in the world is rubbish. Yeah. yeah. And it's a dairy, what do they call it? It's a dairy product, but yeah. it's a, it's not a cheese. It's no. just a, it's it's a not product cheese. of the milk industry. It, yeah, it, it's Exactly right. And, uh, you know, it, it's not cheese that interests me yeah. so much. And let's define rubbish because then now there's a lot of people going, hang on a minute, I, yeah. you know, I get my waxed coated cheddar from such and such and I think it's great. Yeah. I, I mean. Well, you'd be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I remember Will Studd years ago saying, because Will Studd uh, started Calendar Cheese. Absolutely. I remember at the time he was just educating chefs and going, anything wrapped in, you've got a living organism, which is a cheese. Yeah. And then you suffocate it by vacuum packing it or putting it in wax and I think most of Australia was eating their cheese even if it was imported it was often coming in dead because he yeah. said it's now dead oh, okay. and I think for a lot of chefs that was a bit of a surprise because we go all oh, right okay and I'm we don't always think amazed it was a at thing. how I mean Will has played a massive role in in my life and my career and I'm always amazed in Australia how just when you get one or two really passionate people in their chosen field mm. they just send our country off onto another yeah, direction. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he's he's been formidable in his support of, of great cheese. Well, that introduces us then in my mind to the regulation. So we're eating a lot of dead cheese, we're eating a lot of dairy product, we're eating mm. at the very worst, you know, things that really, I mean, it doesn't well, taste of anything. Cheese, it's know. just stuff, right? It doesn't kind of represent anything great. There are those that are very passionate about raw milk cheese and largely they're wanting to to be able to make and eat raw milk cheese because they think it tastes better and they think it, it, it probably represents the craft in the best possible way. Those who are against it are concerned about food safety. Now, I would argue that um, it doesn't matter if you're making pasteurised cheese or unpasteurised cheese, we're all concerned about food safety and there are many pathways towards producing a safe cheese Pasteurisation is just one of them. Safe raw milk cheese is made every day all around the world. And, you know, we make a safe raw milk cheese at Bruni Island. In fact, I would argue that the raw milk cheese that we make on Bruni Island is, in fact, the safest cheese that we make. Um, Also, what we need to consider, and I think this is a really important point, is cheese is a product of farming, you know, on a on a dairy farm, we're essentially producing cheese rather than milk. Um, and what happens on the farm, healthy animals, you know, good animal welfare, good practices, human practices, that's going to contribute yeah. way more to the, the food safety aspect yeah. of the final so this cheese is the than argument. anything carries, else. Good practices at the start carry up the chain and actually in an industrial process it can actually mask bad practices and yeah. then you end up with problems associated with those on a, but on a mass scale yeah. rather than on a small scale. Yeah, because particularly because a lot of that milk comes from, it, it might be two or three dozen different farms, right? You just need one animal with a problem on one of those farms. Yeah. All that milk gets pulled together. And they get Absolute, a big problem. Yeah, you've got to pasteurise yeah. that gear. I've obviously been down to, I've been down to Bruny Island a couple of times. Yeah. It's, it's absolute 
beautiful place. And it's funny because <laughs> I have the same, I, I haven't convinced my wife, but I look at Hobart in exactly the same way and Brilliant oh, really? Island in the same way as you described You'd earlier. be very welcome there. Oh, it's such a gorgeous place. It's God's country as far as I'm concerned. After the break, Nick and I discuss the future of Bruny Island cheese and something very close to my heart, why beer goes better with cheese than wine. Hmm, very controversial, I know. You mentioned Japan. So obviously, yeah. you know, if people want to have a look at Bruny Island, go, if they, they can look at the website, they can see how beautiful this place is, the 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 business that you've started uh-huh. and you've explained that you got there. How did you get there? Where were you before? Like you said, you're in Japan. What were you doing? Like, how did you? Uh, I was in Japan because I was chasing Leone. Oh, really. right. Okay. Um, that had nothing to do with, with food. Although when Also, I... cheese is a passion, but Leone at the time was a passion too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it still is. And, um, um, no, well, she, she'd been there for, for quite some time. I'd been working in Melbourne. I, um, I mentioned Will Studd before. Um, I before Melbourne, I was actually working in the UK in the cheese industry. Will and Stephanie Alexander opened Richmond Hill Cafe and Larder right. and asked me to come back and run there or set up and run the cheese room there. So I was actually in Melbourne for five years, um, and that was a really formative time was of one my of the life. First. Would it would have been one of the proper first cheese rooms in? Melbourne. Uh, yeah, look, I, I'd say it was the first che- the that, first real they? cheese room in Australia because yeah. we were we were doing affinage, we were maturing cheese in the room. People could walk in, and I really wanted them to be able to experience it rather than being in a glass box um, or a cool room. You know, this was the first sort of maturing room that you could buy cheese cut from the wheel, wrapped up in wax paper, and uh, it, you know, really drew on both Will's passion for for retailing and educating yeah. cheese as well as And I suppose own. the first glimpse for Melburnians that, you know, this was, they were living things and you were looking after it and like little babies, you know. Yeah, like absolutely. Wiping them down and turning them and all yep. that stuff. Yeah, you bet. And and really um, pulled on Will's contacts in, in Europe where he was importing some really interesting cheeses back then. It's yeah, so you were in London. Did you work at Neil's Yard or was it? Yeah, I was at Neil's Yard for about a year. I had this fantastic job at Neil's Yard where... I was travelling around the UK a lot and I sort of became the liaison uh, between Neil's Yard Dairy, which is a, a retail shop primar- primarily, but also very um, big export departments of that business and wholesale departments of that business. And my job was to liaise between all of their suppliers. They had about 60 different cheesemakers around the UK and I just spend a year travelling around, visiting them, making cheese with them, having, you know, sharing a meal with them, cooking with them, and then kind of feeding those stories back into the business so that we, the whole of the business could gain a much stronger appreciation of not just the product, but the people and where that product comes from. How did this Aussie get that job? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, Randolph Hodgson, who um, was one of the people that started um, Neil's Yard Dairy, uh, was very quick to tell me he loves Australians working for him. He's had a, a strong history of Australians working for them because uh, they work really hard and they yeah. don't cost very much. Ah, yeah. they were <laughs> cheap. Know? So, you know, like I was dossing on the floor of the office upstairs at Neil's Yard Dairy for a while and, um, I mean, I just thought it was, as, as an education, as someone who was young and passionate because the reason that I went to the UK originally or, or Europe was I started life in, in restaurants, both front of house and, and then eventually back of house where I was mm. cooking and I was cooking in a restaurant in the Eden Valley. This is how I 
got into being a cheesemaker is because it was one of those restaurants almost a bit ahead of its time where we were making everything from scratch. You know, we were growing a bunch of stuff and, you know, we'd come in and make all of our own breads and crush our own oils and mm. everything every, every day. How long and ago was this? This was in... Um, 1993, 1994, and one of the few things that we were buying in was cheese because none of us knew how to make it. Um, so I, I don't know, I can't even remember who I contacted, but I got a 20-litre bucket of raw goat's milk delivered to me and we just started playing. The internet didn't exist back then, no. you know, like if you wanted to, you know, and cheese making was... The domain of hippies, really. Yeah. So you're Home rummaging around making. trying to find a book somewhere. That's in a library. Recipe. You remember libraries? Libraries, yeah. yeah. I remember those things. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know, we started messing around making our own cheese there and I was just hooked. So when that restaurant closed, um, I was asked what I was going to do next and I very quickly said, I'm going to learn how to make cheese. Yeah. And, but why did you go to the UK? Why not France? Well, I was actually example. given something called a Queen's Trust Fellowship Um and that was my plan was, you know, fly to London and then go to France and Italy and do it all. Uh, landed in Heathrow, got on the Piccadilly line, popped up in Covent Garden, went to Neil Chardary and he offered me a job. And that's sort of where I stayed <laughs> there. Since then, I've obviously travelled quite yeah. a lot and been to France many, many times. And that times. would have been around a period in the UK where there was a resurgence in trying to rediscover cheese in the UK. Oh, absolutely. And Neil Chardary is completely the reason that that happened. You know, Nils Yard Dairy only sold British territorial yeah. cheeses. Because once upon a time, well, it would have been the same as Australia was, you know, where everybody just bought cheddar and it wasn't cheddar, it was just cheese. Yeah. Everything was wrapped in plastic. And, look, and then ten- all of a sudden discovering old recipes and making them. Totally right. And 10 years mm. ago, to conceive a shop only selling Australian cheese, it just wouldn't work. But these days, you absolutely could put a shop like Neil Chardier yeah. together. So we're, so we're waiting for one. No plans for you to do that? Well, not at the moment, but we're actually just about to launch a, a cheese festival here in Melbourne um, coming up in September. It's called Mould, and it's just Perfect. a celebration of Australian cheese. And I reckon we're getting that's going to go off. 20 of the best cheesemakers in Australia here. With you know, They're all bringing what they consider is the best cheeses that they make. Uh, I can't wait. It's going to be so exciting. Sounds absolutely fabulous. Yeah. So I think my last visit uh, down to Bruny Island would have been... Last summer, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I I had my in-laws over from the UK and we took the trip down. They thought it was just... They'd never... You know, my father-in-law's from Ireland. He was just in heaven. You know, for him, it was just... He wanted to go and live there straight away. Uh, But we stopped at Bruny Island Cheese and... You know, it, for me, then I'm like a kid in a candy store. I can't mm. choose. You know, I just mm. go, just give us stuff. So you've got a bakery there, your uh, beer, uh, cheese. I'd love to yeah. know more about your favourite cheeses and maybe you've developed that site too. So it's grown since my last visit. You've, yeah. Well, we've had, we added and a brewery. And it was busy too. Yeah, summer's a bit mental. Um, we added a brewery about a year or so ago. We've we started making bread. So, well, let me tell you to the beginning. We started making because we're yeasty growing things here. It's yeah. all on the same plane, isn't it? Well, we make the <laughs> stuff I like to eat, really. <laughs> um, and fermentation is absolute reason I got hooked in making cheese. You know, like I'm I'm very interested in the science part of the craft as well. Um, the cheeses that we make are definitely the cheeses that I like to eat. So, you know, we make pretty strongly flavoured, particularly washed rind cheeses. 
I love sort of hard cooked curd cheeses. Mm-hmm. So that raw milk C2 that we make is yeah. is a typical kind of mountain style cheese that that uh, is from the Alps. Um, ironically made at sea level. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, and the, like, like I said to you before, you know, we're just trying to make the best local cheeses that we can. And because of that, we don't make stuff that's called brie or cheddar, you know. They've all got individual names. Yeah. So like what? Oh, there's a bunch. So there's Owen, which is spelled O-E-N, which is short for the word Owenology. So it's a soft cow's milk washed rind cheese that's actually washed in... Tasmanian Pinot Noir, and then wrapped up in vine leaves. Um, we make a cheese called 1792, which is very typical sort of a Tasmanian cheese insofar as it's matured on human pine, which is a very sort of aromatic, pungent uh, timber that imparts a real resinous characteristic um, and almost a smokiness in, into mm. that cheese. So it's a... As a cheesemaker, I'm really fascinated by that relationship between the cheese and the bacteria on the outside of the cheese and the wood on which it's matured. Um, we make a, a cheese called Tom, T-O-M, which is, um, I don't know, maybe it's the cheese that we make that I eat the most of just because it's um, it's quite, in, in terms of cheesemaking, it's not tricky at all. Like it's just really well-made, well-matured cheese, semi-hard, fast maturing, loads of flavour. It's kind of like a masterclass in savouriness. And because of that, it's just delicious. <laughs> and Tom comes from a French word, which is T-O-M-M-E. Yeah. And Tom in France describes a style of cheese, which are all quite small, fast maturing cheeses. And most regions of France would have a, a variation on, on that theme. And they're, you know, Tom de Savoie, for example, yeah. is, is quite a famous Tom. Yeah. So where did the brewing start? Oh, look, I joke that it was a way of getting cheap beer, but um, turns out you have to spend about half a million dollars first to get cheap <laughs> beer. Um, beer and cheese, to me, has the most in- incredible relationship, way more to me than wine and cheese does. Mm. You know, and I think that um, bang for your buck, cheese and beer are a much better partnership and a much more enjoyable partnership. That's not to say you can't have great wine and cheese experiences. Of course, of course you can, but they're not automatic, or they're not as automatic in, as they are in beer. You know, in Australia, what we do often when we drop a hundred bucks on some really good cheese and we've got some good mates coming around for dinner, is our default position is to say, right, I'm going to get the Expensive. biggest. Expensive baddest bottle of red in my, in my you know, mm. cupboard, cellar, whatever. And often that's the worst thing because high in alcohol, really quite high in acid or tannin and astringency, and they're all just things that clash terribly with cheese. Cooler climate, more refined sort of delicate red wines or, or red wines with a bit of age are, are going to be much better with, with cheese than, than big fat reds. But beer... Is uh, is a very natural partner to cheese, and, that, and that's because I suppose what's softer, they've got more some of the yeasty or hoppy characteristics. Yeah. is that yeah. and other flavours that you can add to beer that uh, would? There's just marry. less things that are going to clash with with uh, with beer than there are in some of those big wines, and so I've always been a bit of a, a home brewer, sort of Mickey Mouse home brewer. Um, and then I met a, a young Tasmanian fella called Evan Hunter, who, uh, even for a young fella, he's had some incredible experience brewing beer, and he's a 
he's a beer nerd, this guy, mm. you know, like, uh, and kind of reminds me a, a lot uh, of myself as a cheesemaker. He's quite analytical um, and quite passionate about the science as well as the craft of brewing. We got together and, you know, over the course of uh, a, a couple of meetings, decided that we we're going to, you know, Build spend a half a million dollars. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was going to spend half a million dollars and he was going to brew beer. Um, and it's worked out really well. It's added uh, a really lovely part to the whole operation on Bruni. And, mm. um, you know, to come to us now where you can eat wood-fired pizza and, and wood-fired sourdough with some cheese and, and some beer and know that it's all made on site, is, yeah. it's pretty special. It's pretty special. I think I have a picture of my father-in-law you know, looking up from the table through his beer, uh, him looking in the distance, which is a great. I, I think you'd be pretty happy with that. It's like a poster boy of yeah. you know happiness. At it's that a lovely point. place to sit. It is absolutely. On an afternoon, yeah. So, so where are you? Where are you taking this thing? Where? What are you? What are you seeing as next project? Because I hear you've got a couple of things in the park. Well, the stuff that interests me is where I feel like we can make a contribution, uh, where we can do something a little bit differently to the way it's being done. Well, I think we've done that with the cheese, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that we've done that also with the beer. You know, the way that we make beer is a bit different, and what we're making is a bit different. Um, a big project that I've got on now, like a game changer for me, is that we're in the middle of starting our a new dairy farm. Now, there's two stages to that. The first stage is actually you know, cows on ground and, and yeah. milking them. And we're just a, a few weeks away from that being a reality. So we start calving first week of September. And we bought a property in the Huon Valley at a place called Glen Huon on the Huon River, just this most incredibly beautiful property that had laid virtually dormant for a couple of decades. Mm. Um, and so we weren't having to kind of undo anything, but the flip side of that is we have to do everything. Right. There's nothing there. And, you know, when I was travelling around Europe and America last year writing Milkmaid, my, my book, I was visiting a whole heap of small dairy farms and the penny really started to drop for me. I've always wanted a dairy farm, but it's always seemed like a bit of a distant dream for me, partly because I'm a cheesemaker. I'm not a farmer. Yeah. I don't know the first thing about dairy farming. Um, although I'm learning rather fast. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we committed to this farm and to develop a dairy farm um, and to have control over our own milk is quite extraordinary. But to do it in a way that's very different to any other dairy farm that exists in the in the big dairy commodity industry um, is is a fascinating kind of intellectual exercise because... You know, those farms have to operate within a system um, and the margins available to them are so fine yeah. that often the only way that they can turn a dollar is to, you know, have economy of scale. So have hundreds of cows and highly productive cows. It's all about productivity and efficiency. We don't need that because we take that milk and we turn it into cheese and that's our business. We don't actually need a dairy farm to exist within that system. So what does a dairy farm look like if you take productivity and efficiency out of the list of must-haves? What about if you prioritise animal welfare and milk quality? 
what does that change a dairy farm to look like? And the answer is quite a lot. And to go through that system and to come out the other end with a dairy farm that, you know, like it just sends shivers down my spine how exciting this is. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier you wrote a book, Milkmate. Yeah. It uh, came out last year. Yeah. I've got a copy. Thank I you. I can't remember if you sent me a copy or whether I bought a copy. I think I bought it. Yeah, I think I did. Oh, and, I it's hope, a, well, and it's a good one. I apologise. I hope I no, said it fine. to you. <laughs> so what, what made you do that? What was the driving force behind that? Because it's a fabulous book too. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted people to start asking the right questions about cheese and where their cheese came from. And it's it's been a, it, the journey of writing it was incredible. Um, and ever since then, it's been really exciting. Mm. It just I've literally uh, a month ago come back from the states where it picked up a James Beard Award. Congratulations! Which was Amazing. So, in amongst experience. all those, you know, highfalutin artisan businesses in America, in the yeah. states, yeah, that and little old cheesery from Bruny Island's done all right. Is that? Is that yeah, what you're absolutely. <laughs> and it was quite a bizarre experience being in because no one knew me in yeah. that room. Like it was like it's like the Oscars of food writing in the states, and over there, it's a big deal, mm, um, very big deal. Uh, and to just kind of be in my own little bubble um, and you know, observing that and then being a part of it was a pretty incredible experience. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. Now, there's a we talked about the cheese festival, didn't we? Mold, which Mold is Mold Cheese Festival. Yep. Don't drag your feet if you're going to come because it will sell out. And the response, uh, not just from the cheesemakers in Australia who have just clearly been wanting something like this to kind of get behind and mm. showcase everything that we do in Australia, but also to kind of to build a bit of capacity in our industry because we're all flat out and all very separated ge- yeah. geographically. But the um, the the customers, the the visitors, the Cheese Festival yeah. have signed and what up date, to come what's that? September the second, and in Melbourne at the Meat Market in yeah. North Melbourne. So, so that's so, fabulous. You know what? A real pleasure. I, I you were on my list of had to come in and chat. <laughs> on this podcast, only because, you know, I love cheese. I spend a ridiculous amount of money on cheese. And uh, I always feel slightly guilty. But my, one of my greatest pleasures is, and also uh, pain, is mm. when I send my daughter uh, to school with, I don't know, a great kind of alpine uh, gruyere. Yeah. And she comes home and says, Dad, that cheese was great. You know, <laughs> and yet if I put a cheap cheddar in there, she comes home and goes, Dad, what was that cheese? Yeah, fantastic. So there's a, there's a, a pleasure in that. And, you know, I, I've always been well, a little obsessed by it. People like me need people like you yeah absolutely and and (laughs) the crowd's getting bigger so more success to you and uh, next time i'm down in uh in tassie i'm I'm coming over again so nick haddo thank you very much thank you so here are my tips and tricks and this is all about cheese and i love cheese i'm cheese obsessed i go to the market and spend way too much money on cheese but the reason I like it is because it's packed full of flavour and lots of different flavours. Most people get used to a cheddar-style cheese. You know, they stick in the kids' lunchboxes, they grate, put on toast. But if you want different flavours, if you want to super boost your cheese consumption, then here's a couple of things. Buy something like fresh ricotta, spread it on toasted sourdough, drizzle with olive oil, maybe some chilli flakes or a little salt and pepper. It is delicious. And serve with a soup. Absolutely yum. And with that same soup, you could take something like Gruyere or Comte, which sounds very fancy, but it's basically a hard-style cheese. So if you love cheddar, you'll love those two cheeses. And it's got a bit of age. It's got a bit of funkiness to it. And if you mix that with your cheddar or serve it just grated on its own over the top of 
toast and pop it under the grill. It is absolutely yum. And it gives you that extra little bit of flavour. And you can also add things like mustard. So you can put a spread of mustard, spread of mayo on the toast, grate the cheese over the top. Now my mouth's watering. That's why I love food. And then pop it under the grill so it goes all melty. It is yummy. So on its own, delish, but also with a soup. Wonderful. On the next episode, I speak to a very, very dear friend of mine, George Columbaris, and we cover everything from his early beginnings, his childhood, his apprenticeship, his early days as a chef, the things that drive him, the things that get him out of bed in the morning, and of course, some of the recent issues that George has been dealing with in the media. Here's a sneak peek. Yeah, it was horrible. Um, look, you know, obviously some, some Alaricans were making comments, and what, you know, one of them made a comment and it got me, and, and it got me because it was personal um and uh, uh you know I, I thought i'd take the law into my own hands and walked up to him and you know and do i regret it that's next time on a plate to call home i'm gary megan talk to you then a plate to call home is recorded in the podcast one studios the show is produced by dave swalensky executive producer jamie show Special thanks to Imogen Thomas for the research and audio production by Nick Slater.